0: Welcome to Story Smack. This is Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. This week we're discussing the nineteen ninety-eight comedy classic Coming to America.
1: FDO, can you give us the uh, movie guide? Well, let me introduce myself first. I am Scott Sigler, number one New York Times selling best selling author, and I was you know how old I was? I don't. I was 137. Moroccan Marciano whooped my ass. We should also bring in our lovely co-host, I think. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Empty Set Movie Maven and Archduke of Western Zamunda. Ah. Rob Otto. Hello, <laughs> hello, sir, royalty. How are you? Hello. Greetings from
2: lovely Zamunda. Ah. It's uh, so wonderful to see everyone. <laughs> um, couple things. I've got an announcement to make. I know I didn't warn you about this, but I, I have accepted a, a, um, a professorship. Um, at the uh, the cinematic department of the University of the United States, it's a very small school. It doesn't even have a basketball team. And the other announcement I have to make, which I should have warned you about, is that the royal penis is clean. The, so royal,
1: the royal penis is clean. Now, and Rob, that, you sent us a you, you sent us a recipe for a drink you're having. Yes, which is delicious
2: drink, but I didn't have all the ingredients, so we're not having it. What is it? Tell us about it. So this is actually since of course we are going to the best place to find a queen for a royal king, uh, the borough of Queens. This was a drink called the Queens. Mm, so nice. yes, it's a uh, it's it's gin, it's vermouth, it's just a a splash of <laughs> wonderful uh, grapefruit juice or pineapple juice, pineapple. and it
1: uh-huh. is
2: yeah. delicious. It is
1: lovely. and Look,
2: I'm, I'm so fancy. Oh, I'm a umbrella fancy umbrellas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Baby, tell people... Vacation what, uh, and lovely Zamunda. Tell people what we're drinking. We're drinking and If a... you guys are drinking at home, whether it be an alcoholic beverage, non-alcoholic, any variety, we say cheers to you. Cheers. cheers. We are cheers. drinking what's called a... Um, Oh, Jesus. It's
0: not a cinema parisi-
1: par- Parisio.
0: It's something else from the shaker and spoon, but I wasn't prepared, so I have no idea what it is. It's grapefruit and citrus and. <laughs> Sounds yummy. delicious. I know. I'm not. It's a vodka drink with grapefruit.
2: Yay!
1: <laughs> Rob, you've got some congratulations on your professorship in the chat room. And Excellent. also, uh, Dominic wants to congratulate you on your clean penis.
2: Yeah, that is very nice. Excellent. Oh, uh, right. So, uh, how I'd like about to now? say that's the first time Dominic thanked me on my clean sheets. <laughs> uh, I, I would hate to lie, <laughs>
0: Mister Sigler. Can you give us the movie? dude? yes, uh, I, can. Trailer yes I can. Pitch.
1: Immersed in luxury and riches, the courteous, courteous, courteous. I get. I, I wrote Curt, the cur- damn thing cur- down. Courteous. Cur- courteous. Oh, yeah. I think it's courteous because he's
0: from a royal court. It's definitely courteous.
1: Let's Say a here different here. word. <laughs> here we go. Immersed in luxury and riches, <laughs> immersed in luxury and riches, the rich as hell blue blood and blue blood and refined heir apparent to Africa's prosperous kingdom of Zamunda, Prince Akeem, summons up the courage to reject an arranged marriage proposal on his twenty first birthday. Bent on finding true love, the young aristocrat, along with his trusted valet Semi find themselves in the strange and unknown urban jungle of New York City's queens, trying to mingle with their neighbors by posing as humble exchange students. More than anything in the world, the noble prince yearns to be loved for what he is and not for his title. However, can he find his soulmate in the bustling Big Apple? There we go. Mm-hmm. I, it took me Woo. three tries, but I got I got through it. <laughs> That's the way it goes. All right, let's get into the... Let's get the nitty gritty of this. One of my favorite movies. I love it. And uh, it was a. It, let's see how it did financially. Uh, A.K.? So, coming to America, this uh, will talk about
0: where in everybody's uh, career this movie took place the director, the writer, Eddie Murphy, Oshinny Hall, all that jazz. And. Um, <clears throat> I will say that this came in with a budget of $36 million to make in 1988, which is nothing to sneeze at back in 1988. That would have been an $80 million budget in today's dollars, so it was absolutely an expensive movie to make. Mm -hmm. But- that gamble paid off, but banking on Eddie Murphy definitely paid off, because in its opening weekend, it earned $21.4 million, uh, oh. which went on and eventually went on to make $128 million worldwide, which in today's dollars would be is $285.5 million. Oh. So, it absolutely oh. was profitable and ready to go. Overall, yeah. it ranks as the 240th... Um, on the box office US box office adjusted for inflation chart of all time. So That's pretty big. That's wow. a pretty big movie, yeah. And it wow. absolutely
1: was a hit. Now I initially uh A it was busy this week so I, I did some of the script and I accidentally put in $284 million and then adjusted that for inflation. And like, Ooh. coming to America made a billion dollars? <laughs> that's like Avengers money. That's insane. That you know, that way, was in right?
2: Zamunda dollars. Yeah, that, yeah, that must it. have been what that was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he has All his right. own money. He, had, see, he made, <laughs> in his own money. Rob, real quick, your high-level general thoughts on coming to America. We didn't
2: know this at the time, but this would actually end up being the peak of Eddie Murphy's career. He was the absolute king of comedy through the 80s. He was a huge bankable star, Mm -hmm. and some movies from the 80s you can't go back and watch and appreciate them, and this is not one of them. This is a movie you can watch again and again and again. It is just really well done, and even the cultural references of the time – yeah. still make you laugh, they and do. still make sense.
1: Yeah. yeah. AK, how about you?
0: Uh, I don't disagree. I think it was um, a, a lot easier to to phone in a, a sort of a, a culture clashy movie back then. We, we mm-hmm. literally talked about it on the last Story Smack that, or maybe we talked about it offline, that there are a lot of 80s movies that we love as 80s kids Can't that we can em. never watch. Can't watch em. And Coming to America is absolutely not one of them. I was telling mm-hmm. Scott when we were watching it... Um, I wonder if even back in 1988, uh, I brought up uh, Black Panther, which came out just a couple of years ago. And there was a lot of discussion around Black Panther having to be sort of twice as perfect in every regard. Like the script had to be perfect. The scenes had to, the cinematography had to be perfect. And I argue that maybe that was true in 1988 because, you know, there's the royal penises clean, which could have been super salacious and a really like like off like off-color joke about the woman Mm -hmm. and yet it wasn't. It was this perfect, like, it wasn't salacious at all. It was just a a note for Prince Hakeem, like, I can't even I can't even write my, my own business. Come on now. Like something has to change. And and I love that about it. And I and I'm I, I'm glad that we have a couple of instances of this, especially such a well made movie. That's what I love so much. It's so well written, it's so well made. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And my my overall thoughts are this was a, a celebration of a incredible young talent who had risen risen through the ranks, had a lot of success on SNL, and then the amount of power Eddie Murphy had to make the movie he wanted to make playing all the different roles the vastly majority black cast he got to make all of these decisions because he had earned that right with his box office cred yeah. and his his creative his creative genius and brilliance, and he got to make this movie pretty much the way you want to make it, and I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. As a creator myself, that's wonderful.
0: And you know, he's he's. We've seen a couple of of um, artists over the last, especially recently, with Story Smack, that have lasted for a long time, and their career has shifted and changed. And that's true of Eddie Murphy too. I don't disagree that this was among the height of his power at the box office, but he did great. He pivoted into dad movies, and he's still a yeah. great, huge,
1: giant <laughs> he's star. Made a hum- t- Makes wonderful movies He's He's and make a ton, ton of money. Today. Yeah, yep. And speaking of Mister Eddie Murphy, Rob, let me get the uh, actors up here and then we get the cast pictures. Boom! Tell us about Yay. Eddie Murphy <laughs> at the height of his power. Yeah, Edward
2: Regan Murphy was just the king of comedy in the '80s, and at the beginning of the '80s, we didn't know it. A lot of people thought it was going to be Joe Piscopo, who was, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy that was right with Eddie Murphy that helped revive the third incarnation of Saturday Night Live. The two of them were absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know if Eddie had the drive, if he had the look, he had the laugh, he had the smile, whatever it was. He broke through much bigger than Joe Piscopo ever did. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Eddie, it it starts with, um, you know, his his comedy comedy. movie, Delirious, and then he's in 48 Hours, which is a huge smash so people start thinking, okay, this guy's a movie star. Mm -hmm. Then, he does a movie with Dudley Moore. Um, called best defense yeah, and absolutely. it was a huge mistake. It was an <laughs> awful, awful movie. And everybody's like, well, that's it. You know, Joe Piscopo had his one movie and he's not doing anything. Now the same thing happened to Eddie Murphy. I remember actually at the time, Eddie Murphy, they tried for a couple of years to get him to come back and host Saturday Night Live and he wouldn't do it mm-hmm. after best defense crashed. He came back and did it because he, he was just like, I better I better make sure there's still something going on. And then around the same time is when Beverly Hills Cop comes out. Yeah. And it is a star vehicle for Eddie Murphy. It is written with his personality is ingrained through that movie. And because of that, he's so likable. And it's still an action movie and there's still moments that you're on the edge of your seat. But he, boom, he explodes. And then everybody says, okay, this guy's a bankable star. Uh-huh. So he follows it up with Golden Child. I, 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 I want the nine <laughs> you know, and then it's it's coming to America. And as Scott said, this was an Eddie Murphy vehicle from beginning to end. He made every decision about this movie. The company, the producers let him do that. He chose John Landis to direct. And even though we'll talk a little later, it didn't go well for mm-hmm. their relationship. Right, right. But Landis had been coming off a couple of really bad Bad bombs as well, and a lot of people didn't want him, but Eddie wanted him, and he got him. And it's John Landis's sensibility, Eddie Murphy's um, personality, Arsenio Hall. Teaming up as the perfect foil for Eddie Murphy, right? This movie is pretty close to perfect, yeah. and it's mostly because of Eddie Murphy.
1: Mm-hmm. And speaking of Arsenio Hall, a uh, t- this such an interesting time in his career too when they made this movie.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So he's um, at the time he is uh, had made a couple of comedy appearances. He'd been on Soul Train. Um, oh. He was the, <laughs> the Soul, he was the announcer Soul. for a, a Don show called...
2: Cordelius. <laughs>
0: For a show called Thick of the Night, okay. starring uh, you youngins might know Robin <laughs> Thick's older or er, dad Dang. Alan Thick, <laughs> older dad. You I hope so. You guys
2: don't remember Alan Thick's talk show? Not I really. do, but he not doesn't at all. all. remember yeah, it was you back in the mid to late eighties to mid to l- late nineties? There were about seventy-eight different so talk many. shows. Every, so they tried to give everybody a late-night talk show. Mm-hmm. Alan Thick was one of them, and it was very Canadian. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, and it became... So it becomes a late show. Eventually, Arsenio Hall starts to host. It doesn't actually go well for him, but then... I mean, it doesn't go poorly, but it doesn't... It's not the breakout that becomes the Arsenio Hall Mm -hmm. show, which he does for years and years. Um, And uh, before... the Arsenio Hall show which came after Coming to America so okay. yet again he he does Coming to America he's exactly the same he goes into it not with no street cred not the same as Eddie Murphy or John Landis right. but he does whatever is required of him he plays multiple characters he's a, you know um, subservient he's all those things in this pitch perfect comedy way and he shows his chops in this movie in exactly the mm-hmm. same way he's especially great. like there's moments where he's completely subservient because that is his upbringing in, from Zamunda but then there's also like when he ditches and he's going to spend the whole night in the hot tub kind of thing. He's like, I need to get mine when I can. And he does all of that also pitch perfectly without being like denigrating or rude, like because he's a servant, right? So in the moments where he's being served, he could be rude. That would be perfectly acceptable. We see that in movies all the time. right? And yet he doesn't do that. And it raises his star too. And he goes on to do the Arsenio Hall show, which is famous for a million reasons, including one of the very first times that you get a president in this case, but a politician being human, which Mm -hmm. is when Bill Clinton plays... Plays the That's saxophone right. on I about that. I And that was about Arsenio that. Hall's was idea. Like, we know exactly who you are, and we have 10,000 things, 10,000 different outlets telling us what your presidential uh, perspective is, but. Nobody's she telling bust me if you some can play the sax, sax son, and, and he does it, and, and it really changes the, the the landscape of how you interact with politicians. I and think.
2: I, I think the success of this movie and how good Arsenio Hall is in this movie, uh-huh. I bet it led directly to the meetings that led to the Arsenio. Oh, Hall. for sure. And oh, I absolutely. Think, I think yeah. it, it had to. He was huge because of this movie. He was a
1: he. And he, he This was the height of his star power, but it was a huge amount of star power at the time he got that show. And then he kicked ass on the show to his show. For a little while, his show crushed.
0: And for Arsenio Hall, different than John Landis and some of the other folks we'll talk about, this was a huge star-making moment super early in his career. A little tongue-in-cheek, like Scott mentioned, he wrote the script this week, and he said, other than Amazon women on the moon, (laughs) in which Arsenio Hall was the... hallway apartment victim Uh, (laughs) coming to america might have been his breakout moment which i kudos to you that's perfect yeah yeah Yeah,
2: i i've got to tell you i would like to retract my last statement it was obviously apartment (laughs) hall guy that's what got him the art (laughs) in the city i I apologize (laughs)
1: uh and then there was someone who did not need a breakout moment and that i consider the third lead of this movie that of course is mr james earl jones (laughs) so good he uh already a star. He, for, for for guys for for gentlemen of Robin Mai's age, James Earl Jones as Thulsa Doom in Conan mm-hmm. is just Conan. straight friggin' royalty. There's so many And that's before he's friggin' Darth Friggin Vader. Before he's Darth <laughs> Vader, it's
0: before he's in um uh Field of Dreams, which also oh, matters. There's, there's so many yeah. moments King, that that King. shape and speaking of King, yeah.
1: he's he's a king several times. He's been a king. He's been a king several times. That's right. He was Thulsa and Conan DeBr. Of course, he was uh, he's been the only voice of Vader so far. He had done dozens of movies and TV, and uh if you're obviously if you're looking for a man with the regal voice uh to play King Joe that's that's him. Although Sidney Porte was considered for the role.
0: Yeah, but which I, I can totally understand. Mr. Too. Jones has been
1: around so long. Here's a picture of Mr. Jones on the screen for those of you listening in the podcast. You can't see it. But here he is as Dr. Jim Frazier, number two. On the Guiding Light in 1966. <laughs> ah, 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 1966. Oh, Where and he went, the hell did you find that? <laughs> he wasn't even the first guy to play the role. He's like, so a, this a, is, he's like tiny James Earl Jones oh, he's, then. This he's is like, what, hi, sweet
0: tiny James Earl Jones. This is what Earl actors
1: Jones. have to do. You know, they got to find that role. Did I have the really young picture? Of him? And then here's a picture of Mr. Mm. James Earl Jones just at, as a young, badass just an mofo. Beast. Just a beast. And then we finish up with him. of course. He he was. Uh, where did I, I? I lost it. Yes, yes he was M- Mufasa in the yep. Lion King. Interesting enough, he is not the only person from coming to America to go I on and play Lion King I royalty. Love this so much. It is also that the Queen of Zumunda Mad Sinclair voiced Mufasa's mate, Sabari, in The Lion King as well. And
0: that, of course, was
1: absolutely intentional and fantastic. And then we go on to... It's clever. It's so, so clever, clever right? Yeah. So smart. One of the greatest comedy directors of all time. Rob, tell us about Mr. John Landis.
2: I mean, John Landis, you want to talk about some of the greatest comedies of all time, just go through John Landis's IMDb page, right? I mean, we're talking about Animal House, Blues Brothers. Oh my god. The comedy version of a horror movie, an American werewolf in London, trading places which he did with Murphy and yep. they did such a great job in that. Another one that really helped launch uh, Eddie Murphy. He directs Michael Jackson's thriller video mm-hmm. which remember was like, you know, was like huge. 30 minute Video right, Huge. and everybody watched. Everybody, if you were alive at that time, you were up at midnight on that uh-huh. Friday night uh-huh. and watched the world premiere yep. on MTV. Yep. And if you were too the, young,
0: of, you had to beg your parents to make sure you changed. had cable to get MTV, so you didn't miss it. That
1: video changed <laughs> uh-huh. entertainment forever.
0: Yeah, well, and yep. and it was at the height of MTV's platform yeah, as true. a music yes. video platform too. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> and then you know he does uh, Three Amigos, and then he has a couple of really bad movies that okay. did that did poorly. And so when Eddie Murphy says, I want John Landis on this movie, the production company said, I, I don't think John Landis is what he used to be. I think we should go in a different direction. And Eddie really had to sell Landis and basically said, nah, John Landis is is directing this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got the role. And it really um, you know, they they had gotten along so well during trading places. But what had happened in the meantime as you know, as we have talked about how Eddie Murphy became the king of comedy in the mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, Eddie Murphy's ego had also realized that <laughs> Murphy was the king of comedy and he had a huge entourage and he had all these Crazy things on his rider that he had to have available to him at all times. Like he had to have food deliveries, he had to have a driver twenty four seven. He had That's to have all insane. this stuff. And John Landis has come out since and said, you know, Eddie Murphy was kind of a dick during that movie. He is <laughs> he he was you know his own farts did not smell apparently to Eddie Murphy because mm-hmm. at this point, um and and they had huge ego problems and yet. None of it showed on the screen. That's true. I mean, you would not know that there was turmoil between the star and the driving force of this movie right. and his right. handpicked director. You would have no idea. And essentially, Eddie afterwards said, I'm never working with John Landis again. Yep. Until a few years later when Eddie <laughs> wasn't doing so well and then he worked with John Landis again. But I
0: have to say, this is one of my favorite things. If you look at John Landis's career independent of Eddie Murphy and then you do the same thing for Eddie Murphy... It, Independent of John Landis or any director, you you see that both of those uh, artists, both of those makers, both of those creators, they are very very invested in how their product mm-hmm. looks. So I kind of love. I hate that they they clashed on such a such a perfect project because that's the one thing that's not perfect about it. But I love yep. that they also. Especially for Eddie Murphy, who who will who goes on to talk about the the, the years of his ego hubris yeah. uh, later yeah. in his career. Oh yeah, he admits uh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it's lovely that they were able, as creators and makers who are so dedicated, to see that part of each other four years later for Beverly Hills Cop Two and be like, "All right, no, I know that I was kind of a giant dick, but." Um, I still need you to do this with me, or it's not gonna go well. You know, that kind right, right. of thing. Help yeah, I you, I, I hooked you, you
2: up, you hooked me up. Help me out. Yeah. yeah, you helped get the best out of my performances, and I think we can do that again. Yeah, and, and I really both, have a lot of love for that. That's the goes aside. Yeah.
1: yeah. As as big of a fan of Eddie Murphy as I am, this was his Pinnacle as an as an actor in the kind of movies that he does. He mm-hmm. this is his best movie. He plays that role so perfectly yeah. as the as the vulnerable, <laughs> introspective, yet incredibly rich I could be such an asshole because I have all this power and yet he's not. He treats everybody fairly, everybody kindly. He's very funny. He he's self-deprecating and you got to think John Landis is part of that performance. Well, and
0: I will argue that that's absolutely true and maybe not necessarily the perform well, the performance, yes, not the script which is all Eddie Mer- Murphy, but we see it again in Beverly Hills Cop. We see the same thing happen, where Axel in Beverly Hills Cop isn't you know, so apple polished, shiny, Mm -hmm. as Prince Akeem is, but he is a person who has a lot of personal accountability, a lot of personal responsibility, and doesn't throw a lot of people under the bus who don't deserve being thrown under the bus.
1: The the thing about Eddie Murphy in this movie and other movies is the guy is so friggin' likable. Like, you can't watch him be on the screen Mm -hmm. and be like, God, I'd love to have a beer with that guy. He's when so
0: friggin' likable. When you think about how in Eddie Murphy was in the scripts for both of those movies mm-hmm. and then the fact that John Landis except you know accepted the director directorial job for both of those movies you realize that one of the things Landis can do is let Eddie Murphy be Eddie Murphy yeah he's got it as long as that doesn't take away from the script or the movie which i love
2: And then we got. I like something, Scotty. Before yeah. we move on here, something you said really struck me because, also the physical affectations that you get from Akeem, even when he is a lowly mop boy. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like, like he's sitting in a you know a plastic molded chair in the middle of McDowell's, and yet. He still sits like a king would sit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He, he's trying to sit on a swing behind McDowell's house, and he can't. He can't quite sit right until he he puts his hand up on the chain and puffs his chest mm-hmm. out like he's holding a <laughs> spear or something. And then it's just like, yes, that's how a king would sit. And yet he has all these physical affectations, mm-hmm. even when he's trying to hide it. When he's being the lowly mop boy um, during his character, he can't hide it because yeah. that's just who he is. And the fact that I don't know if it was if it was Eddie that came up with that, or if it was. Landis or some combination thereof, his physical affectations through the entire movie are exactly what someone raised as a prince who's about to become a king, how he would
1: act. Mm -hmm. And let's as we're (laughs) raving about the cast, there's a couple of cast members that some of you may not know about that are absolute Hollywood royalty. And uh, A is going to tell us about a crew member. A uh, crew, crew member, yeah, crew sorry, member. Crew yeah, A going to tell us about so Deborah Niduleman. Niduleman.
0: Yeah, Deborah Nudulaman is the costumer on this. Um, the
1: costumes are so good they're, And Incredible. they're so. And,
0: and one of the the beautiful things about Ameri- uh, um, Deborah Nudulaman, who is also Deborah Nadulaman Landis, she eventually marries John Landis. Um, in American cinema... I honestly did not know that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah did not know that. Yeah. Uh, in American cinema, she she has made so many things that you understand mm-hmm. as iconic for American cinema, and they all look like sort of last-minute decisions, no-big-deal decisions. Yeah. You, things like oh, she designs... Yeah, she designs uh, Indiana Jones, fedora, and leather jacket, and whip. Mm-hmm. She designs... Uh, um, John Belushi's college t-shirt that says college. <laughs> you know, she does that. Um, she, uh, she also works with her, her now husband uh, John Landis in the Blues Brothers in Animal House in the mm-hmm. Three Amigos. So tell me what you know about those movies from a costume perspective. They're Animal iconic. House. Done. Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers. Done. That,
1: the, 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 three- the visual of the Blues Brothers has endured for 40 years. Yeah. Also, the so three Simple. amigos,
0: you know, one thing about the three amigos, which are their mariachi, their mariachi outfits <laughs> yeah, and those three a, white dudes. Right. Like, she's that's what you know. And so she and hello, does.
2: How about the red leather jacket and the and thriller, thriller? Yeah, yeah. Right? absolutely. She I does mean, all of that's
0: that. Right. She currently is the chair of the of um, the um, costuming in in cinema uh chair at USC in California. And she's a professional. Yeah. And she's actually about to open as soon as we're allowed to open things, a perspective on um, making people into iconic characters by costume. Oh, my God. Yeah. I want to I would love to see that. I want to see that. That is
2: a slightly larger university than the University (laughs) of the United States. I'd like to point that out.
1: (laughs) And now uh, we will talk about someone. I have an enormous amount of hubris as Rob is uh, has known for many, many years and my wife is known for many, many years. I pretty much think I can do everything better than everybody else. It's just Wait, except aut- for
0: except for flowers and hearts and stuff.
1: Yeah, that, yeah. any emotional stuff I can't do, but if it's entertaining, yeah, like, no, stuff, stuff. Like,
0: oh, well, you can do a lot of emotional okay. stuff really well. I, like I, the, I, I can. Yes, oh I my gosh, can. I've never met a girl as special as you yeah. That's not so much. You can do it you can do it if that person is evil. You're like, no, no. No, Alice, you're my favorite. No, no, trust me, I'm a doctor. You're my
2: we'll favorite. be together forever. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> It's
0: just the, you know, the non-confrontational Hearts and Flowers. that There's not one
1: so area of movies in which I am nothing but a fanboy. Obviously, if I see any script, I'm like, I, in my head, in my messed up head, I could have done this part of that script better. I could have written that book better. I could have done all these things better. Acting even, like, I could have coached that better, directed better. There's one area I have no fucking clue in, and that is uh, that is special effects and makeup. And the one of the all-time kings of, give me this back here, boop. We have Rick Baker. People may not realize this. Rick Baker, the Academy Award-winning makeup artist for an American werewolf in London, Harry and the Hendersons, Men in Black, The Wolfman, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Five! Five Academy Awards did the makeup for Coming to America, and it's pretty friggin' spectacular. Mm -hmm. And there's Baker and Eddie Murphy as Saul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's wonderful about this is so
0: you know that Rick Baker is not necessarily part of that Brooklyn uh, barbershop. Yeah, but the other two Jews could totally be there. Like they could totally have been just normal part of that barbershop in you know Brooklyn Heights or whatever. John is also is
1: like, something that Scott could do well. I'm just saying. I could I could pass I could pass for a crusty Jewish dude in a barbershop. I'm sure I could, and. Uh, the incredible makeup of Saul is based on it's Rick beautiful. Baker's father-in-law, Nestor Abascal. And I tried to find a picture of Nestor for the, for the video part of this. Could yeah. not find one. But of course, this man is just incredible. And the makeup, two points about the makeup was so good. Why the makeup was so good for Saul. The makeup was so good that Eddie Murphy was so delighted with it, he would get in a golf cart, drive around the movie lot <laughs> at Paramount Studios, <laughs> get out, really? walk up to people and say, I'm Eddie Murphy and his real voice and talk like him and no one believed him.
0: It'd be like, um, security. Can you get this demented
2: yes. old Everyone man? Please. Is this like, crazy old Jewish man <laughs> pretending to. This talk old like Jewish Eddie Murphy.
1: man has the best Eddie Murphy impression I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Wow, it's incredible! It's incredible. And uh, and that that is Rick Baker's. Rick Baker. So can you skill. go
0: back to the photo that you just had up there for Rick Baker? Uh, we've one? seen this a few times, and we'll see it again. We have talked about this with Tom Savini in From Dusk Till Dawn as well. One of my favorite things about. Um special effects makeup artists that use material effects, real effects like Rick Baker, like Tom Savini, like Stan Winston. Uh, There's always a photo like this. It also is true for Guillermo del Toro. There's a photo like this of him with these hideous things around him and he's smiling to beat the man like he can't be happier (laughs) because those are his creations and I'm like if I were right where Rick Baker was in this photo I would literally pee my pants and pass out like that's what would happen to me with all those things around me I think if I thought they were real
1: (laughs) and then um, we've got so let's see. So we've covered the Rick Baker stuff, which is super fun, and now we're going to go to this neat thing about some of the connections and the cameos in this. Yeah, which so are many. just there's there is some star power that was not stars yet.
0: When well, and they, this. and there this is also something to be said about Eddie Murphy and Rick, or, uh, John Landis's ability to see their own, to mm-hmm. smell their own in yeah, they, in they Hollywood. Cause smell they talent. Right, because they're going to focus on things
1: that 30 years later we're still interested in, and they knew it then. And you would think that uh, Landis, you get as a director, you want the best product on the screen, but a guy of Eddie Murphy's Stature and status at the time might be intimidated by young up and comers, other people who might steal the stage from him it doesn 't seem to be the case he seems to want well, and he want talks about he, he
0: literally talks about that before while you 're queuing this up. He yeah. talks about that again later in his life when he 's talking about how he became and and stayed Eddie Murphy he sort of talks about, especially with his relationship with uh, Richard Pryor, the idea of standing on the shoulders of giants and the obligation he has to Recognize the 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 reason he was able to be as funny as he was is that he learned from the masters, and I think that the Don Amici especially like those scenes, I think are are an homage, saying thank you for being it, part of it, my my upbringing and my my career making and all that other stuff too.
1: And uh, we go back into actors, and now speaking of Don Amici, Rob, tell us uh, mm-hmm. tell tell us about uh, Rob and I saw both of these movies in the theater together, yep. and then uh, probably a hundred times on VHS. And these guys were killed. Rob, tell us about this connection. I'm going to say probably twice in a minute. Probably in Ralph Bellamy,
2: it was the Dukes, it was the Dukes. They play <laughs> they play Randolph and Mortimer Duke in trading places, who yep. are the main, you know, the main antagonists, right? And it's just a little throwaway after Semi gets all this money and and is spending it not wisely because, you know, uh Akeem wants everyone to think he's poor so that someone will fall in love with him for who he is, not what he has. So he has this huge wad of money, puts it in a McDowell's bag, and hands it to two bums on the sidewalk. And then the bums show their faces. And at the end of Trading Places, the Duke brothers went broke because yeah. of what you know Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd did to them. And now they have this huge wad of money and they like, you know, they they we're back. Mortimer, we're back. Mortimer. Right? And they bang on the window. They say, thank you. Let's do lunch. Right? And it's, just like, it's just like this little call to say, hey we know, we loved that movie as much as everyone watching this movie did yeah. and now we just put them in the same universe and that's pretty darn cool so mm-hmm. the shared universe between trading spaces universe. and uh, I said trading spaces, that's the show on HGTV, uh, <laughs> trading <laughs> but we were places with <laughs> and coming to America is cool because yeah. now all that stuff lives in the same universe and that's kind of cool to think about. And
1: they even yeah. brought him back in a way for coming to America, coming to America, to the America. sequel Colin Jost is, uh, is the uh, I don't know. I'm racist interviewer in that one, mm-hmm. and they show the and he's a Duke, and it's it's just a really really nice touch. And then there is this. I did not know, Rob. You probably know this. Oh, yes, and I, I'm sure that Howard knows this. Is always in the chat room. I didn't. I'd never heard of see you next Wednesday. And I'm a oh huge John Landis fan. I met John Landis once. It's in my uh, three famous people I've met that I just lost my shit. Oh, I did the same wow. thing. Yeah, yeah I, I like, knew you met John Landis. I met John That's Landis awesome. and thought, uh, thought I was, you know, super, I'm um, suave, I'm cool, I'm right. I met John Landis and lost my shit. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh my God, you're John Landis, and he made that one movie. Adam was is great. I wrote a book called Landis. You should take a look at it. He's just so awesome, John Landis. Oh my god, <laughs> that is a lot like. Yeah, but it's okay. It was only in front of like 300 very famous people <laughs> that I did this shit.
0: I uh, had a quite similar moment, not quite as loud, but um, we have a mutual friend. Uh, his who you guys watching may know the the bad astronomer Phil Plate. Um, I was for a while. I worked with Phil Plate, and we were at a party, and John Landis was there, and. Phil is a, such a good friend of mine. He knows what a big fan I am. And so he's like, hey, don't get up. Don't get excited. But uh, John Landis. He didn't tell
1: me in. not to get excited.
0: No, no. Uh, Phil. Yeah. Phil <laughs> says to me, deal. like, don't get excited. John Landis just came in and he's walking right over here to say hello. And he walks up and I turn around. So now it's it's Phil Plate and me here and John Landis here. And I say, hi, you're John Landis.
2: Yes. Like that. So both of you's first thing to John Landis was to tell him he's John Landis. Yes. But here's how yes. lovely yes. John Landis is,
0: because Phil says she is super excited to, to get a chance to meet you. And he says, that's wonderful. I am John Landis. Who are you, my dear? Which is so lovely. Like he could have just been like, yes, hi, and gone on to get, you know, like, yes, hi, nice to meet you and gone on to get a drink or whatever. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, but who are you, my dear? Because now we've told me I'm John Landis three times.
2: Oh, you God. know, so John so Landis lovely. acknowledged the fact that you told him he was John
1: Landis. I think I'm, I freaking love that guy even more now. <laughs> yep. I'm getting the impression he hears that a lot because with me, and I was a slightly more energetic than he was, uh, he just he just smiled and was patient and waited and then asked a couple of questions about me. And like, so you write books, what kind of books you write? Like, he's just, this yeah. dude is a pro, he's an absolute match, pro he really in is, handling yeah. excited, awkward people, yep. and he's very comfortable. With the fact, I'm just a guy. Who makes movies? But some people lose their shit, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was, it was really fun. But yeah. one of the things, like, two f-
2: things. I'm I'm disappointed that I'm the only one of us who has <laughs> never met John Landis, and two, now I have to meet John Landis oh, yeah. just to see if my initial reaction will be to tell him he's John Landis. I think you're obligated <laughs> to it do that. Like if, must if happen if all when, the time.
0: Yeah, even when you do that. In, in fact, I think whenever <laughs> so Comic Con comes back and is a thing, you need to come to California well, and come bringing, to Comic Con with us. Rob's ass. Yeah. Comic Con. And out. you guys can. Just maraud around Comic Con oh, with a Jesus. video camera, but we'll we'll create the moment where you get wow. to tell John Landis his name so is John. This Landis. is
1: uh, <laughs> as as a uh, creator myself who tries to connect everything. The Siglerverse, everything is connected. If I say it's a Siglerverse novel, it's it, it's from the World War II stories to the modern day stories to the 500 years from now the crypt to the 700 years from now the GFL. It's all connected in slu- in different Easter egg ways, and and as a huge John Landis fan. And is a creator who makes a lot of interconnected stuff. I had never heard about See You Next Wednesday. It isn't. We're watching this. We're watching the movie, A and I re-watched the movies together before every story smack. And we get to this part where, uh, see you next Wednesday, They're in the this is a, in a subway? Subway station, yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, like I will not hosted. lie, uh, A and I have see, both seen this movie probably 20 times. We're well in the bag by the time this comes around. We're like, it's been a hard week, we're going to have a few cocktails, watch a movie, have a good time. This comes up, and I, re- I notice that in the background, this space movie called See You Next Wednesday has the name Dan right on it. I'm like, wait a minute. I know all the Dan Aykroyd movies. <laughs> There's no Dan Aykroyd movie called See You Next Wednesday. So we pause the movie, we look it up, and this crap is crazy. So this is John Landis's running gag. If you've never heard of See You Next Wednesday, look it up. Now Google it or go to Wikipedia for it. It is in Michael Jackson's thriller video. Mm-hmm. It is in everything John Landis has done, one way or another. It's in American Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. It is in all of his movies. It's either a movie billboard or a storefront or something like that. But it's sort of John Landis, his little way to say, like, hey, you crazy fans who tell me that I'm John Landis when you meet me. Yeah. I get you. I Here's all the connect- It's just one little thing. And there's a people. handful of folks who do this
0: really well. I think, um, uh, uh, you know, we've seen Stanley make sure he's in every single one of yep. his movies. We have seen uh, THX 1138 in a lot of uh, Spielberg movies and mm-hmm. uh, things like yep. that. Yep. And those, That's yeah. a good one. Those are those yep. little cogbacks. I know that this cast may have differing opinions on uh, all of the filmography of M. Night Shyamalan, but he is also similarly in, injecting himself in a different way than Stephen King. Stephen King inserts himself only as Stephen King, like in that cameo as a writer. Like I, and and I don't know that he always acquits himself well there, but it's always tiny if he does it. Um, unlike. Um Stanley, who became part a character as part of his so, Stephen
1: too. King's thing was to be uh, a bit. Character. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and and
0: Nelson is right. I thought about that. It's it's uh, it's George Lucas, not Steven Spielberg. Okay, right. Okay. Thank you, Nelson.
1: And then a there's one more connection. This movie doesn't just have Landis connections and Murphy movie connections. It's got some old school old school Hollywood tips of the hat for sure, for sure. And Amy Reed points
0: out Hitchcock did this a lot too, which of course he is the creator of this idea and he did so well. Yeah, of the, during,
2: of the director yeah, making a cameo. Exactly, yeah. yeah, every um, single Hitchcock movie has Hitchcock in it yeah. somewhere.
0: <laughs> right. So uh, the connection that Scott is talking about uh, to movies in general and specifically comedies in general, because this is of course the the playground that Eddie Murphy grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, in the national, the national Anthem of Zamunda which plays at the start of the birthday celebration is the same melody as the National an- Anthem of Fredonia in the Marx Brothers
1: film Duck Soup, which was made in 1933. But you think There's about the timeline for you. 1933, Eddie Murphy made Coming to America in 1988, and I think he was 28, 20, like he was, you know, so you go back, Eddie Murphy is a kid in the, so it was like late, late 60s, early 70s. When his parents loved Duck Soup. When his parents loved Duck Soup, yep. and he's watching all these replays and everything, he probably watched Duck Soup, and the Marx Brothers, if you guys don't know the Marx Brothers, they were kings. They were the the kings of comedy in their era. They were titans. So, of course, every comedian... And Eddie Murphy, if you follow him at all, he's a student of the game. He studies Mm -hmm. everybody. He goes to work and he analyzes what everybody does to be funny. And then his effortless talent to make it look easy. So, of course, he's watched the March Brothers. Well, and I of think course.
0: I think also this is a, one of the really, really wonderful things that Eddie that Murphy has the career he deserves and has been working this whole time is that he truly is not only a student of the game, but he considered himself part of the this iconography right like he didn't mm-hmm. say like i'm doing this as an homage he's like i am contributing to what what 50 years from now people will talk about yeah, and he's, he's right. right he's yeah. fucking right yeah, yeah, he's right incredible.
1: yep all right and then we have got a couple more connections let's see where i got lo- i got all excited i got all excited <laughs> rob tell us there are some great cameos that led yeah. to huge careers tell us about them yeah, I mean, you want to talk about
2: uh, an Academy Award winner. How about Cuba J- Cuting Jr.? This is his first film role. Um, he has the very pivotal part of <laughs> boy getting haircut. So I mean that's listen, you want to talk about that as just a career launcher. If you it was though. Boy getting haircut. Oh, <laughs> well, it was. That's true. And it's funny, years later, Kuba told the story that that he actually left some of his performance, ended up on the cutting room floor. Because okay. supposedly he tells Clarence the barber, Hey, by the way, I don't have any money for this haircut. So Clarence takes his clippers and shaves a big strip yeah. down the middle of his head and then says, you know, get the hell out of here, kind of thing, but that all that all ended up on the cutting. Oh, room I floor. would have loved it. I see, s- that. like in
1: my brain, my 80s brain is imprinted that I've seen that clip somewhere at some point. I swear I swear I've seen it somewhere. I don't know if I, no, I think that's the Mandela effect, man. Yeah. I'm not sure it exists anywhere.
2: But it wasn't right. just him. Go ahead, Rob. So um the robber who who you know uh sticks up McDowell's and uh, has some foul language, surprisingly. Was the heavenly mouthed Samuel L. Jackson, uh, who, yes, he, believe it or not, he said some I bad words in this. He did. He, he, didn't. he yelled. And he yelled. Yes. I'm glad he's gotten away from that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about, if we're talking about dollars. In movies that someone's appeared in, yep. Samuel L. Jackson is the most successful actor in the history of the world. Mm. His wow. movies have grossed more money than anyone ever in the history of anything. And he's just a lowly. He's got a two minute scene. Akeem kicks his butt and uh, I believe uh semi calls him uh, some sort of rhinoceros testicle droppings or something <laughs> like that. Disease. Yeah. So-
1: but I mean, you know, Star Wars. He's in a couple. Of, he's in Star Wars movies. He's in Avengers. Yep. So right yep. off the gate, he's way ahead. So he is the biggest box office star of all time. All time. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Yep. And then we got uh, yep. one, one more, two more. Rob, I think uh,
2: we got this couple more. lovely um, human. Garcelle Beauvais, um, who is an actress, um, and and she has been in a lot of movies. She is um, in a lot of series. Right now, she's in a series on, uh, I believe, it's Showtime. Um, it, it, whatever. but she is, she has become a big actress. She was just one of the rose bears, you know one mm-hmm. of the ones throwing the rose petals around herself. Right. and director Toby Hooper who um, directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. unfortunately no longer with us, but he has a, a quick word at the McDowell's party when he's talking to oh, City yeah. Hall when he's playing the uh, the Reverend. A oh, wow. couple of words, and then he walks off. But that's Toby Hooper. Like, like John is probably like, hey, Toby, we're doing this party scene. You want to come on by?
1: Sure, why not? So there you and go. And of course, now I assume... Toby Hooper doesn't sound Jewish. I'm assuming he's Jewish. Says, sure, I'll come down. That'll be fine. Will there be any? Uh, will there be a, a craft services table, perhaps? Something to nosh on a little bit before the scene. The nosh. The That's well played, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Ah, now, so now that is our our wonderful uh, coverage of the cast. That was very fun. Now we're going to go to some general notes. We have 15 minutes left in the show. Um, Ak, any other? Key points. So I really love. Uh, Robbie brought it up earlier in the beginning
0: of the show. Um, <clears throat> one of the notes that came back from the studio was that there were no white people in the movie. Shocker. And, uh, yeah, you know. I'd like to point
2: out that Saul was a white guy.
0: I'm exactly. just saying. Exactly. I'm just saying. Uh, But also, um, Uh you know, now, like, that's an interesting thing because we are in recent years asking, like, cool, like, is this entire cast the same race? Because that doesn't look like people look in the real world. But back then, whole cast, no white people. So Eddie Murphy was like, all right, well, to get it done, I got to put a white person in there. He thinks he says he thinks of the funniest white somebody white is what the studio needs and he starts to think about people who would fit and the funniest one of white people he knows is louis anderson which is how louis anderson ends up at mcdowell's which is i think terrific casting because he's precisely who i would be if i (laughs) worked at mcdowell's yeah exactly (laughs) right so i love that one um we had the the the, uh the um, Anderson is in the original coming to America because the whole cast was black in the studio's like I have to have somebody white in it. And so Eddie Murphy's like, who's the funniest white guy around? And also a friend of mine I can ask to be in the movie, and Louis. I the would love
1: going back to the <clears throat> since we're on the Jewish tip, I would love to think there was some <laughs> some movie Bruce, like Bubla, Eddie, love it. The movie's fantastic, we're gonna make it. And- You got to put a white guy in it. (laughs) Uh, How's it going to sell in Peoria if I don't have a white guy? Just find a white guy. Well, and Tulane
0: points out that the Duke brothers are in it. uh, Eventually, you know, as white dudes, but they they are—they are—they
2: are, yeah, here in their characters. Rob, what are some other key points you love from that? Well, it's something that we saw from Eddie Murphy a number of times, but this is the first time he did it playing multiple characters yes. in the same movie. I mean, we eventually see it in Norbit, yep. nutty professor. He's yep. like, hercule, hercule, Oh mm-hmm. Jesus. Incredible. Uh, um, Incredible. Vampire in Brooklyn over and over and over again. So he obviously plays Hakeem. He plays Clarence, the barber. Uh, he is um, Randy Watson. You recognize oh, God, him from the what's going down episode of that's my mama from <laughs> Sterling Heights own Randy Watson. That boy is good. That boy can sing. Um, and one, two, through. What am I missing? Oh, Saul! Of course, he plays Saul with with all the makeup on, and he tells the joke at the end. So yeah, it's um. Oh, it's shoot. Okay, impressive that we see. The range of Eddie Murphy in one movie, and then something that probably every comedy series said after that: "Hey, can you play about half dozen parts? Because that will cost us a lot less money." Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was just so. <laughs> it was so. It, it, remember, we saw this in the theater, and that was something yeah. that that was something that was not done at the time. And they even a little bit with Saul, which was so good. They give him the cut scene at the end. Mm-hmm. So I say to the waiter, try the soup. And you're like, it just like, it was, it blew us, it blew us all away that it was so, they let, it wasn't that he couldn't do it. I had mm-hmm. seen, we, Rob and I watched every stand up comedian there was back in the day. Mm-hmm. They all had different voices, they all had different characters. There were a lot of guys who could do this. It was the fact that Eddie Murphy was able to do it, was mm-hmm. able to tell the story, like, I'm going to do this. Cause you know, they said, no, we're going to get action sure. for that. And then finally he's like, we're going to
0: do it this well, way. Well, and, and even so, like you see um, uh, Tyler Perry do this a whole lot now and we saw uh, yeah, Martin Lawrence do point. it a little bit, right? But Tyler Perry had to make his own movie studio to do it. Yep. You know? So Eddie Murphy back in the day was like, nope, still doing all these characters.
1: And Amy Reed brings up a great point, which is my favorite, my favorite little known fact about it is uh, Paula Abdul choreographed the opening dance scene in mm-hmm. Zamunda. And I have a lot of respect for people who just walk in the room with huge cojones and lie their way to success. (laughs) John Landis wanted a choreographer that had worked with Janet Jackson. He was surprised when she turned out to be an 18-year-old Laker girl. He asked Paula if she knew anything about African dancing, and she said, yes, of course I do. (laughs) She did not. She knew nothing about African dancing, and then she had to learn about African dancing and then came up with that incredible, we'll just switch over to the open real quick, which uh, does have some of the dancing in it. This dance scene, it Well, I apparently 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 have screwed that up, so we're going to (laughs) go back to this guessing. But yes, Paula Abdul, who has been an enduring commodity in the entertainment space, Mm -hmm. was it for 30 years now? 98, 2008? Over 30 years. So Mm -hmm. even Paula Abdul is involved in all the incredible talent that brought this movie to fruition. There's another
0: um, James Earl Jones connection. Okay. Uh, King Jaffe comes uh, when he arrives in Queens. uh, He says- (laughs) you know, and, and is going to confront his son for having run away and, and uh, run away from the elopement. Uh, he says, No, do not alert him to my presence. I shall deal with him myself, <laughs> which is very familiar if you've seen his Darth Vader, where he says, In Return of the Jedi, oh he God. states, No, leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. Thank you, Rob, for the sound
2: effects. Back, yeah. I mean, that is <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. It's perfect. I love it.
1: One other little note, and then we'll let Rob pick a note and we'll finish this show up. Is, um, There's the great scene where uh, McDowell's, the guy from McDonald's shows up, McDonald's photographer shows up (laughs) and threatens a lawsuit. And of course, that's a very funny bit. It plays very, very well. But they made the McDowells look so real that an actual manager from an actual local McDonald's turned up with his lawyer, saying they were going to sue the movie and Eddie Murphy <laughs> for every penny he had. So this fake they thought scene, it was a real restaurant. They it was yeah. a real restaurant. This <laughs> fake scene they wrote into the movie to make fun of a parody on McDonald's and the guys ripping them off was so realistic that an actual McDonald's guy showed up and threatened to sue them for mm-hmm. ripping off McDonald's. I love that.
2: Love it. It's perfect, and that leads us to John Amos, who we haven't yes. talked about yet. Uh, yeah, yes. John Amos, so who talented. plays Cleo McDowell, who's the you know the the patriarch, and um, it, it's really interesting to watch. He originally doesn't want his daughter dating Akeem because he thinks he's a lowly goat farmer, mm-hmm. and then when the king of Zamunda shows up and doesn't want his son dating a lowly daughter <laughs> of some guy that owns a fast food joint, it's like everything gets flipped on him, and then it's kind of cool to see, but. John Amos, who, of course, was was hugely famous for um, Why Am I Having what's the Trouble? The, yes, thank you very much for Good Times, right? Oh, Good Times, yeah. yes. Not oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, exactly right. But when he was a kid, he worked at the very first McDonald's in Canada mm-hmm. in 1971 before he was on Good Times. Um, he was in a very famous national singing McDonald's ad okay. where, you know, uh, oh, part of it right was grab a was. bucket, grab a mop. Right. Which is funny because he's watching... I, Akeem not know how to work a mop, so yeah. that's even kind of a little thing, you know, thing there. And of course, the guys in the um, the shop call Akeem Kunta Kinte, <laughs> and John Amos played the adult, grown up Kunta Kinte oh, in wait. the very
1: huge, huge. television mini series of Roots. Oh my gosh, right? mm-hmm. huge. Huge. If you guys have never but, seen Roots, uh, it's it's oh uh, it's upsetting. But I was about to incredible. say it is
0: absolutely just as much worth watching, if not more, than Coming to America. Uh, and not nearly as, as fun. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So it's you know almost had a lot of connections. Worth so doing. That was pretty clever.
1: Hard to do. You should do it. I will. Uh, I will make a. Fun. I'll make a quote block for you. A that uh, Coming to America and Roots are both excellent productions, but Coming to America is a bit more fun. <laughs>
2: slightly more fun yes i'm, I'm just glad, trying to say as much as we're out.
0: saying
1: you should watch coming to america we're saying you should watch
0: roots too but just don't expect it to be coming now, here's the
1: thing that uh, i had not learned until rob uh, let me know is at the time of the movie's release filmmaker and writer art buchwald Uh, accused Murphy of lifting the idea from a story from a treatment he did in 82. And, And Buchwald sued. Buchwald versus Paramount in 1982. The writer said the idea was taken from a script he had been developing, calling It's a Crude, Crude World, later renamed king for a day. There was mired in production difficulties. Buchwald won the lawsuit, except a settlement from Paramount reportedly for $900,000, which is we've covered the box office for this. That's it. That stings, but it don't sting all that bad. Yeah, and it he, yeah. And he
0: accused Murphy, but when the lawsuit came out, he actually sued Paramount because yeah. Paramount was the one who would have had the access to his, um, his mm-hmm. treatment, and yeah. it's Paramount who decided like, yeah, no, let's just get on let's with just, this and be done just, with just, this. With
1: just pay this fine. bastard yeah. and let's move on printing money all day long. Yeah. And it might and not despite have done... all that,
2: Eddie Murphy is still listed as the sole writer on this movie. So Bookwal didn't even get a credit and he doesn't get any points after the fact or mm-hmm. any of that. He got a one time payment mm-hmm. and Eddie Murphy still officially wrote
1: this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully he took his one time payment and cried all the way to the bank. Yeah. Cause... Well, and
0: to be fair, I'm not sure if it was like, let's just pay this bastard off. It might have been like, cool, we don't have the time to deal with this. He knows he's got a case. What, what do you want? Like, if we're going to draw this well, out, you're not a, going to get a credit yeah. anyway. Let's just pay you a little money. We appreciate your work. We want to work with you again in the future, which they go on to do. Do they really? Of course they do. Yeah. Art Parkwald is hugely, hugely made in Hollywood.
1: That's, that's <clears throat> I didn't know that. that. I'll have to look that up. That's fabulous. Yeah, I don't know that, for sure, but he's a huge made man. So I'm
0: sure they worked with him. Because in my mind,
1: all Hollywood litigious engagements Wind up with a severed horse head in a bed. All of them. There's, there's no coming back from a lawsuit in Hollywood. You sue, you fight, you hire someone to, to shoot, to cut someone's fingers off, and that is that. Rob, any Scott, last point? You've,
2: uh You've, you've watched too many movies, Scott. That's, uh, that's <laughs> pretty obvious. Which is fabulous. Listen, I want to I end with the last thing on our list here. Because okay. Coming to America was so beloved, especially in the hip-hop community. Totally. I mean, there have been artists year after year after year that pay tribute to this impact of the movie. Either, you know, in their videos, mentions, drops, samples, all this kind of stuff. We're talking Buster Rhyme, Ludacris, Snoop Dogg. Tech Nine. These are all artists who have done it. But the best is Kanye, right? There's that scene where Louis Anderson is talking to the guys and he's saying, Right now I'm washing lettuce. I used to mop the floors like you guys. And next week I'll be on the fries. And then after that, in two years of hard work, I'll be the assistant manager. And that's where the big bucks are. Mm -hmm. But Kanye's got a line in his song Gold Digger. Um, let's see. He got that ambition, baby. Look in his yeah. eyes. Last week it was the mop. Next week it's the fries. I mean, come on. Oh, guys. Shoot we missed Sorry. the end of
0: his rap. Did <laughs> oh you really? Dear, you, you cut off he... my
1: Kanye. No, well, just, just that the uh, uh, uh part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I was uh, I was also calling up Rob. In that that legacy of hip hop influences endured, Action Bronson's song "Baby Blue," which I stumbled across one day a couple of years ago. It does the whole restaurant scene with Samuel Jackson. That's the whole backdrop for the video. <laughs> oh, with Action nice. Bronson being a It's it's fantastic. That's that that song is not it. It's more recent, but yeah, it just, just continues and there's, for there's, a movie from 30-plus years yeah, ago, right? I mean, that's great.
0: Go, babe. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I find Eddie Murphy such a wonderful success story because he, he is such an incredible talent and such a unique in, uh, maker, kind of, in his head. He, he dreams up the craziest things. But I will say, Hollywood has this history of ignoring the... Um, the huge amount of hard work it makes to make a good comedy. Comedies Mm -hmm. are a lot harder to win Oscars for. Comedic performances Mm -hmm. that are pitch perfect are impossible to win Oscars for, really. Um, And yet, if you think of really iconic black uh, artists who make multiple movies and have multiple iterations of their career, they almost always look like this, right? Key and Peele start with comedy.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And they do a lot of comedy really, really, really well. And then they move into something else. Martin Lawrence hasn't done this, but he did go from comedy on TV, ensemble comedy on TV to lots of star running or or star powered one star TV or movie roles. Mm -hmm. Um, We see uh, Will Smith. Will Smith do this. We see this over and over again. You have to start like I don't know. I'm not saying it has to be that way, but we find like really creative, beautiful makers who happen to be black men or women tend, if they start in comedy, can have uh, can be taken more seriously as they move forward because when you look back at this 40 years later, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's so good, which means the only way it was so good is that everybody was paying attention back then too. And a lot of times people, and, and good for them, it, people luck in because they're young and they're pretty or they're pretty, you know, whatever, they get a role that makes them famous. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, we see that happen with Eddie Murphy uh, this way and I kind of, I love that and I hope that continues. Yeah, I yeah, hope so. I really hope thing. so. It's going on.
1: <clears throat> Kevin Hart it's another one, you know, moving exactly, on to other rules. Yeah. Like, co- Kevin Hart is today's Eddie Murphy, right? Yeah, you start with this pitch
0: perfect comedy and then yep. you move on to other things. And I don't think you have to do that, but if it works, we still get the pitch perfect comedy at it's, the end.
1: It's, it's, it's definitely a route in. For certain actors and actresses, that if you come in and you just crush on the comedy front, you stand up or sitcoms, et cetera, mm-hmm. then move up to a comedy movie. And as the comedy movies do well, then you have a platform which you can go, now I want to do something serious. Now I want to do something modeling. Now mm-hmm. I want to do a higher level comedy, like the world is your oyster once you've established your mm-hmm. comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's such an interesting thing because it makes, if if you accept that a powerfully built, fit black actor will be looked at as potentially aggressive before they will be funny and then they come out and are extraordinarily funny and good at it. Then they still look powerful and and they potentially threatening, but they get all of it and you don't he doesn't they don't have to yeah. fight for that too.
2: Yep. Anyhow, I think and we just might... think of oh. just think of Scott Sigler who started off writing <laughs> dirty limericks and look <laughs> at him now. Still writing dirty limericks. <laughs> still am, writing dirty limericks, I am yes. Frightening and giantly powerful as well. <laughs> <man. laughs> yes I am So uh,
0: I think that wraps it up for us today. We did miss Story Smack last week. We're making this up to you this week because we had uh, plumbing issues at the Lair of Doom. So we are going to actually have another Story Smack to get back on track next Saturday. We told you guys that was going to be um, Boogie Nights if you listened to The Last Sigler in Place. However, However, it turns out uh, that we are uh, changing our mind and we're going to do Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Because
2: this Story Smack... With story Smack number 68. <laughs> yes. yes. Which makes the next story smack. What yes, is the s- number? Sixty nine, dudes. Excellent.
1: <laughs> <And> I, <originally,
2: laughs>
1: I originally was going to do, of course, boogie nights, yes. and then I I was talking about it. I do uh, I do coffee with the FTO when I walk the dogs in the morning on Facebook. Do a little Facebook live, just chit chat for a couple of minutes, no big deal. And I mentioned that we're gonna do boogie nights, episode sixty nine. And somebody now I can't remember in the comments who said is like, wow, sad you didn't do Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Next return, sixty-nine dudes and like God damn it <laughs> <laughs> And then literally today that was still stuck in my head. So I texted Rob and A and said, Can we do about ten seconds, I they're they're we all can. they're all good to go. Bill. So Rob, thank you so much for being on as, as usual. Always. You always bring the knowledge heat. As the Duke of Western Zamunda, we thank you. And Professor, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And we will see you next Saturday. Well, listen,
2: trust this guy, Rob Otto. He knows what he's talking about. (laughs) And don't forget to wind your watch.
1: (laughs) There we go. All right, and now we say... Thank you so much, Rob. Good day, Rob. And we go back to Maine. And now it's just you and me, baby girl. Here we go. All right. Well, we are uh, running a little bit late, so we're going to
0: wrap this up. That was episode 68 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is Facebook. Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a dot real dot girl on Instagram.
1: Hold on. I think I've actually screwed this up. There we go. Is that right? Nope. Back. <laughs> 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 we just showed Rob again. Okay. Hold on. Let's, uh, let's go here in studio mode. There we go. God damn it. <laughs> glad I stopped okay. picking my nose. There it is. There we go. We were trying to be all professional. and uh, I, As you guys have noticed, if you watch Sigler Replace every Wednesday, <laughs> Uh, I have a difficult time with the closing of all of these shows. So you can find us online at Facebook.com slash StorySmack. We live stream StorySmack every other Saturday at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, Twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, and YouTube.com slash Scott Sigler. In
0: addition to StorySmack, we also do a once-weekly live stream, as Scott mentioned, called Sigler in Place. It is on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. right here where you watched this.
1: And we release an unabridged episode of a serialized novel of mine every week. You can get episodes for free every Sunday via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe for links. Uh, we hope that you subscribe so that you can hear Scott's books and more stories about goodness in the
0: future. Until, until the, the next, the next episode, episode, we'll talk to you all
1: real soon. soon. Good.